I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Small town, hi, how are you? Small town, hey, I want to say, I want to say, I want to say, I'm into you. of Love Tractor, which features my guest today on the program, Mark Klein. Let me tell you a little bit about Love Tractor and Mark Klein. So, Love Tractor. Well, they were new to me in 1986 when I got their This Ain't No Outer Spaceship album, but at that point, they'd been at it since 1980. In fact, Outer Spaceship was their fourth album, and along with the B-52s and R.E.M., Love Tractor had put Athens, Georgia on the musical map. A mostly instrumental outfit, Love Tractor's first drummer was a, well, it was a drum machine. (laughs) And it was eventually replaced by a real drum machine, a fella named Bill Barry, who rotated in and out of the lineup along with Kit Swartz. Barry left to join R.E.M., and Swartz was replaced by Andrew Carter. And by then, Love Tractor was really hitting their stride. The instrumentals were opening up, with some songs starting to even contain vocals. And by the time we get to the second album, Around the Bend, and the third, Till the Cows Come Home, vocals had emerged as an integral element of the band's sound, and the addition fleshed out the compositions and made them richer and more textured. Love Tractor put out two more records, 1989's Themes from Venus and 2001's The Sky at Night, and then the band went on hiatus. There were a few unofficial Love Tractor releases tucked in there, but I'll let Mark explain what those were. Basically, here's what it comes down to. When the members of Love Tractor are together in the same room, something magical happens. But when the members of Love Tractor aren't all in Love Tractor, well, Love Tractor doesn't really sound like Love Tractor. (laughs) That's about as diplomatic as I can put it. Now, a friend of mine asked me the other day to describe what Love Tractor sounds like, and I started to craft an answer. And my answer was something like, I don't know, Imagine if Brian Wilson fronted Kraftwerk at a circus on Mars, and I was saying that, and then I realized that it not only sounded stupid, uh, what I was saying was only really a percentage of an idea of what this pan sounds like. So let me just say this. I don't know. 
how to describe Love Tractor's music. I have no idea. But what I do know is that if you put any of their records on, you can't say they sound like they're from a particular era. As a matter of fact, time and place elude this band because they're so inventive, so idiosyncratic, and so wholly original, they exist out of time. Their songs always have jangle and groove, and you never know when they're going to reach colossal pop heights or stirring musical depths. But I can guarantee you this, one of those things is always going to happen. For example, a song like I Broke My Saw has an explosive pop chorus, while the seven-minute instrumental We All Loved Each Other So Much shimmers and rolls and pretty much breaks your heart in half. What I'm getting at here is that Love Tractor's music is always magical, melodic, and deeply satisfying. Oh, and that hiatus I mentioned earlier? Well, it's over. More on that on the back nine of this show. But in the meantime, enjoy my conversation with Love Tractor guitarist Mark Klein right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. For example, like I'll go to Rome and I'll do medieval Rome or I'll do ancient Rome or I'll go to Rome just to look at Caravaggio's um, or other painters. And, um, you know, for a particular interest, just to, to see like paintings or art in situ. Um, but, um, you know, usually I end up getting in trouble with the My Side Vacations. I was at, in Antigua at a place called um, Mill Reef. And um, it's like an old waspy, it was founded by the Melons, kind of enclave where, you know, everyone's supposed to be very low key and down to earth. And, you know, you, you drink rum punch all day and you smoke weed. And... You know, it's like, I mean, I think I've wrecked three golf carts while I've been there because there are no cars. And, you know, like rolled, last time I was there, I rolled one down the side of a mountain, basically, with two pals in it. And, you know, I wake up the next morning, I'm just like black and blue. I was like, oh, what did I do last night? (laughs) I didn't even remember. So that's what kind of happens on the Mai Tai vacations for me. And that that sounds like the kind of thing you would tell people when I was twenty. I like that that's still happening for you. <laughs> it's still happening. It's, <laughs> you know, it's, trust me. It's you know, it still happens. Um, <laughs> it's not or, you know, Mark Klein likes a good mai tai or two, or two, three, or four, <laughs> and you know, and scoring weed off of you know strange people on strange islands, you know. But it's like those kind of vacations for me is like all rules are off. It's, you know, I'm going to go, you know, blow the roof off of it. Those kind of vacations. But, you know, the vacations that are kind of sightseeing or touristy, you know, is a different sort of thing because, you know, you have to have stamina for that. But I wonder, like, are both of them still just as hard to return back to civilian life from? 
<sighs> I think so, yeah. 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 You know, you try to stay in the moment when you're on vacation, especially for, you know, a New Yorker. You know, it's you, you want to stay – the minute your mind drifts back to New York, it's like it's just a litany of issues and things you have to deal with that are stacking up. So it's really about staying in the moment and not thinking about home. And um, either way works for me. And um, so I'm kind of recuperated. Well, you uh, you sound good. You sound you sound like you're grounded and and back. I'm grounded. I'm back. You know, designing away back in the office. And, um, but you know, it's, it's been tough this week. It's like I was doing mock ups for a website and keep, you know, I literally kept trashing the files just so like I couldn't stand what I was looking at. Was just my headspace. I was not in the right headspace to do any of it. So, I mean, that's what I, you know, I studied in school was design. So for me, it's just, I, I, I've sort of thrown today away. And say it's going to be Monday. My head won't be in, in it until Monday. Well, I like the idea that you recognize, like, what's the point of going on with this? Let's just let's call it a day, stick a pin in it, and get on with it. Yeah, I mean, it's, I've always done the same thing with music. I mean, you know, it's like if something's not working. It's like either work it harder or put it away for a while or throw it in the garbage can. Um, and you know, with Love Tractor, that's something that we've always done. Is um, I mean, there's still songs that we have that we've never completed because it just maybe we're not mature enough, or they, the right accident didn't come along, or um, it just you know it's not coming together. And a lot of times, you know, in writing. Because uh, we really write collaboratively, is um, a song won't be working, and then we've learned that then we have to push through a certain point, um, like give that extra hour or two hours, and then something starts to happen on it. Uh, you know, somebody makes the mis- makes an error, makes a mistake that takes it in another direction, and ah, everything falls into place. You know, I, I'm a firm believer in happy accidents. If you listen to, I don't mean you, you, you know the songs, but if one were to listen to anything from the Love Tractor catalog, you guys always were a very meticulous band. So I get what you're saying, uh, right? Yeah, it's something I've come to realize just recently, um, how meticulous we are, because I've had to go back and we've been performing our album sort of in sequence. And I've had to go back and relearn certain songs. And quite honestly, I, I sit there, I'll go to part of the catalog. I say, why the hell did I write this? It's so fucking difficult <laughs> to play. And, you know, and it's one of these things we're redoing, we're relearning all of our albums in sequence simply because it's the way to do it. Because that's how the albums evolved. I can't go to like later work and just without having relearned the first and second album. 
and, and performed that way um, because my technique evolved a certain way. Um, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, but you know, there is, everything is very precise. Even the stuff that doesn't sound precise, it's, it's particularly there for a specific, everything is there for a specific reason. Um, in fact, I have to go back and we're readying our catalog for re-release on vinyl and, and just, you know, cleaning everything up. A lot of the masters that were done were, they were mastered for vinyl, never really properly mastered for digital. And so I do all of that. And I discovered that on our first album, there were actually tracks that were missing um quarter inch tracks and so i'm gonna have to go back i can't just remix one song i have to go remix the entire album um so that it holds together cohesively which will be interesting because everything the way that album was mixed was specifically mixed that way and i've got to match it i have fairly good enough memory of how we did it and there'll be notes because bruce baxter who recorded it mixed it left pretty much copious notes on everything. Um, and, uh, but, you know, it should be interesting, but, you know, it's unfortunate that I have to go do that just because, you know, there's a couple of tracks that were spliced out and from the quarter inch masters and from the safeties and never returned. And I don't know where the hell they are. And so the only way to do it is to remix the whole thing to make it sound correct. When you go back and I mean, it, you know, a lot of bands have their sort of like, and, and I mean this affectionately, those sort of sloppy apprentice years. But when I, when I listen to like around the bend or the first one, it's like, there's, there's not a drop of slop anywhere. There's no, there's nothing scruffy about those, those first initial strikes. You guys came out of the gate, a meticulous band. Does that surprise you when you go back and listen to it? Like, wow, we were really pretty advanced for being so young. Um, I, it does, and it doesn't surprise me. I mean, we had completely, first of all, you know, you have all your life to write your first album. And you've been, luckily for us, we'd written basically our first and second album um, before we ever recorded. But we also didn't have the pressure of a record company telling us, we need a hit. You know, this isn't good enough. You need to go back and write more. That we could put out songs that, you know, like Paint Your Face and Stand in the Corner that, you know, kind of herald back to Kraut Rock. Um, we had complete freedom, whatever we wanted to do. And so we took that freedom. And also, I mean, the fact that, like, Arms and I were in art school at the same time those albums came out. And so that in itself, as we're, other members of the Athens, you know, professors would sit there and it gave us encouragement, you know, which was do what you want to do. And don't do what other people want you to do. And that came later in our career. You know, the, the more popular you got, the more pressure you got from, from industry types. But, but um, you know, we're in a position now also, like we're, we have a new album that's basically about 50% finished. It's in the can. And it's exactly 100% what we want to do. It's not, there's no pressure to, you know, there has to be a hit song or anything like that on it. I mean, especially nowadays, 
I mean, there's just so much music that's streaming and whatnot. And the last album that we did in 2001, The Sky at Night, it was the same thing. I mean, it had leftover material that was supposed to be the follow-up to themes from Venus, which some of it we ended up scrapping, some of it we ended up rewriting, and then we wrote new material for that album, which was also supposed to be a double album. <laughs> wow, so I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, but the record company was, the record company was, you know, rushing us, and you know they weren't so into the idea of a double album. They needed there was a release date. It was set. It was a hard set release date for a record, and you know we had to meet it. And so we had to make you know cuts where we had to. And um, we, you know, we've been talking to record companies now saying, "Well, we want to re-release this album, but we want to re-release it the way we originally wanted to do it." You know, the Sky Night as a double album, and um, they don't like that idea. <laughs> They don't like the idea of having to press piece, two pieces of vinyl and, you know, stick it in one package. It's, you know, it's expensive for them, but I don't really care. And, um, which we'll, I'm sure we'll do. We'll do it our way. And um, it always takes time. I mean, it's one of the reasons it's, we always take, it always takes so much time for us in between any kind of release is, because we want to do it our way. And that's funny you say that, because I've always wondered. Um, I mean, for me, like, Themes from Venus is just a perfect record. I mean, I, I love everything you guys have done. But that album, for me, when I heard I Broke My Saw, I said, Love Tractor is about to take over the world. Like, this is this yeah. is just pure pop perfection. And it's whimsical, and it does everything that I love at once. It was like the Beach Boys meets... I mean, who knows? I could go on all day about how much I love this. and I, I, It's just ridiculous. And then, and again, this is at the time where, I, I don't even need to say this, it was 89, there was no internet, so people could fall off the map, and you'd yeah. have to wonder, like, where those guys go? And this is the time, for our listeners, who may or may not remember, there was a gold rush of sign every indie band, like, you know, the most obscure indie band, like a band like Poi Dog Pondering was on a major label at this point. They got signed. I remember. Right. They used, yeah, they used to open for us. I know. So all these bands got signed. Big Dipper got signed. I mean, they were just snatching them up. And I thought Love Tractor is going to rule the world. And then for for this guy in California, you guys vanished. So what? Like, so tell me <laughs> what exactly happened. And were you? I mean, was that a conscious decision? Was it sort of like, you know, life con- away? It was conscious. I mean, our, we had been on the road basically for two years. And um, we signed with new management and we told the new management, we don't want to be on the road. We just, we need time to write. You know, we were changing, you know, as adults. Um, We were no longer 19 year olds in art school. And, and immediately the management is like wanting to throw us on the road and not giving us time to write and you know they want you know wanting demo typical you know typical management sort of stuff and so you know we were basically burnt out Mm -hmm. and we you know we we 
had the follow-up record sort of demoed and sing, sitting in the can, um, ready to record. And we just said, we could, I, I remember sitting there saying, I just can't do this. I need a break. And so and we did. We, we sat down and just said, no, 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 we got to stop this. Everyone got jobs, took a break from each other. Because, I mean, we were on top of each other 24-7. And I would say probably 95 is when we said, okay, we're ready to start doing some stuff again. And But not touring. We didn't want to tour. Um, we'd had our sort of day of that. I mean, we for Themes from Venus, we'd done like two national tours on that record. And then spent a year on the road with the B-52s of that record. And we were, that kind of did it for us. And, um, which was tough because the food was really good, which never really saw the light of day. I mean, there's, there's pieces of it, sort of like the Beach Boys smile. There's pieces of them in the sky, of not, uh, sky at night. But by the time we reached Sky at Night, we had a different idea about what this al- what the album should be. It's a much more mature album. Um, but Themes from Venus was a an album, I think is one of our best. And it was, to me, it was very much ahead of its time. Oh, I totally agree with that. Um, and, and let me get this straight. So the, the follow-up to Themes from Venus was written and in the can. Yeah, we had the follow-up in the can. We uh, written, you know, basically the whole album. And... Um, working title was Galaxy Sound System and um, we just sort of left it and you know because we were burnt out and and we had these managers that wanted us to continue on doing what we had been doing which we really didn't want to do and so about 1995 we, you know, got back together and said, okay, let's take a look at this material and let's see if we want to do this. And, um, which we realized that a lot of it we wanted to rewrite um, and add new material to it. Um, Some of it was too similar to Themes from Venus. I mean, too much time had passed, really. And um, and also, it was something that we wanted to produce ourselves. And um, so, we, you know, it was, it was a really great record to record because we would basically work on a song, finish the song, go two blocks down the street to a recording studio in Athens and cut a track. And, or two. And you know, then go our separate ways and meet, you know, a couple of weeks later and do the same thing. And we sort of pieced the record together that way. And um, the first song we wrote for it was, uh, which is one of my favorite Love Tractor songs of all time, was called The Ship Sails On, which is comes from that Fellini movie, Elena Vera. Um, and, but, 
you know, it was just typical that we were burnt, um, really tired of being on the road. And uh, we also saw music changing. And at least I did. I, I remember sitting, I was over at Mike Mills' house one night and um, we were like laughing, listening to um, Pour Some Sugar on Me by Def Leppard. And then we put on Nevermind by um, Nirvana. And we're like, um, things are changing. And do we want to keep doing exactly what we're doing or do we have to change with the times? Because music is generational. There's, you have a period of about 10 years that your fans follow you and will keep buying your records and then they age out of you. And we had reached that sort of 10 year point. And, uh, and, you know, you still see it, you know that, I mean, from, from bands that you grew up with, say in high school and college. Sure. You age out of them, and um, and when I heard the like when I heard Nirvana, I was like, ah, you know, this is going to be a big change in music. There's going to be a big, big shift, and you know, we had done, um, which I can't remember what year that had come out. Never mind. But um, when we did Themes from Venus, it was a, a really the whole concept of the record was. It was us, in a way, looking back to things that influenced us as in high school, things that we really loved musically. There's a lot of Roxy music in there, a lot of David Bowie, um, a lot of Brian Eno, Kraftwerk, a lot of English art rock, and even prog rock um, is in is what really makes up themes from Venus. It's kind of like a, an um, homage, uh, you know, to our high school years and college years, more so high school years. Um, and the follow-up just for me, wasn't going to be as artistically successful. Once I heard the way music was changing and that our audience was going to change. Um, um, so it was time to to stop, and you know we were burnt out, and um, and but you know five years, maybe less than that. I mean we really stopped performing probably live around ninety two, I think. Then in ninety five we got back together to look at this material and put it out, and because there were there were specific songs that I really liked. And I really wanted to put out, but I wanted to do it in a different manner. And um, so did everybody else. And <clears throat> we, instead of going to a 24 track studio, we went to a 16 track studio to limit ourselves. And um, we brought a new member into the band, a guy named Doug Stanley, who's also in the that band, The Glands. I don't know if you're familiar sure, with Sure, yes. And Doug was just, just like this amazing addition to the band that who should have been there from day one. And, um, and, you know, and a different way and we brought in a different drummer and it was this whole different thing. Um, 
and which I think, you know, for me, Sky at Night is one of those records that's extremely successful artistically. I mean, commercially, I, you know, there are songs that people love on it. And now we're sort of in the place where it's like, okay, we've got some songs. Like, in fact, we finished Sky at Night. I went back and I was living in D.C. at the time and I had a bunch of his songs in my head and I, I wrote them down, you know, so wrote, you know, these sketched out these songs. Or I'd send him an arm and he'd finish sketching them out. And there are pieces of it sitting around. They, they've been sitting around since 2001. And um, now we're sort of ready to do it again. Um, and we had tried earlier and it was just like, didn't it didn't sound right. You know, the, it was like we were repeating ourselves. And again, you know, if, if you look at our catalog, there's not really repetition on any of our albums. Um, and so what we're working on now is we have the songs. We're, I think, in this process now, sort of sculpting them together. Um, and in fact, like earlier this week, I was wondering if it should be, you know, like like a quadrophenia or a, you know like a theme album that you know tells one story because the lyrics aren't complete for the album and um it'll be pretty much in a sense it'll be about half instrumental right now it's about half instrumental um but it could change i mean we could finish the record if we wanted to by christmas or it could be Look out, cartoon doggies and cartoon pigs. Here comes the big pink pig. Him won't you like some seeds? 
our main focus right now is the re-release of our of all of our catalog and sort of the restoration of it. I mean, there, for example, like on on around the band, there are two mixes on the album that was released that are the wrong mixes, and so you know, there's some restoration that needs to go into that um, remastering. Uh, themes from Venus to me never got a proper mastering. Um, it's um, because it's such a dense record and so right. thick. Um, and now there's the now there's technology that really that can really spread the frequencies out. Um, so our focus is sort of on getting that. I mean, Armstead keeps coming back where we're talking about we're working on new material and Armstead keeps focusing no 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 we need to get these albums re-released done finished and then do another album and which may come out just as singles because that's all the bands i listen to now is all they do is release singles and then maybe um put together an album of those singles a year later because people don't, you know, people stream and they don't buy physical, unless it's vinyl, but they don't buy a physical album. Right. They'll buy a song here and a song there. It's another thing. It's a different world. And, um, and we, you know, we grew up in that generation of making an album as a complete work and not just writing singles. It's, it's, it's kind of funny to me in the sense that when rock and roll started, it was all about singles. They would call a, what we call a single, they would call a record. And, you know, Little Richard would put out singles. The Beatles would put out singles. And, you know, like Hey Jude or these albums that that <laughs> we look at as Beatles albums were really just a collection of singles for American release. Right. And um, so, you know, to me, it's a challenge of, how do we create that album that people are going to listen to for an album and not just pick a song off? It was interesting to me, you know, before Bowie died, the fact that, you know, his last, that last hit of his Black Star <coughs> was exactly 10 minutes, which is, is, I mean, to the second, it's 10 minutes long, because that's what iTunes will take. Um, that's as long as they will allow a song to be. And, you know, and I, I'm sure what he wanted to do was probably write something much longer. Um, uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's different. It's a different sort of landscape in getting the material, um, listened to the way you want to, you want your audience to listen to it. I mean, you can always ask them. I mean, remember when you buy an, like a Cure album, it would say "Play Loud." Yeah, you know. Um, but with stuff is streaming, <coughs> what do we have? Backwards vocals on it that say, you know, "Buy the entire album." <laughs> <laughs> but you, you know? I mean, you have always been good at kind of reading the green, and 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 from what what you're saying, and from what I'm hearing about how you're. I mean, you seem like you have been very good at sort of looking at the landscape and saying, 
here's how this is now, or here's how we can fit into this, or how we will not. Within the band, it's been a major discussion about with the new material about how to release it and, and maybe releasing like, you know, three singles at a time um, and then eventually collecting them into an album. Um, you know, like cigarettes after sex. <laughs> right. You know, that. You know, yeah. they, they release just singles, but they're all tied together in the sense of this look, this sound, this whatever. That's right. Um, and so it sort of holds together. Um, whether you like them or not. Um, but they've been very smart. Well, he has. He's been really smart about how he does that. You know, we're big fans of, well, we're, you know, we're fans of all kinds of music. But, you know, for us, it's like, you know, we would love to sit there and write an album that is, you know, like a prog rock album that's like Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd. That, but you know that it has to be listened to as an album, not as as a single. And and I grew up in the era of in Atlanta when there was a radio station there called Ninety Six Rock, which invented AOR, album oriented rock. And that's where you would listen to you know the album tracks off of Led Zeppelin or um, you know not the singles. It was always the album tracks and they would always, you know, they, they'd be that would be the radio station that would have like the King Biscuit flower hour. Right. Uh, you know, um, so for me, it's like this total experience. And, um, and, you know, as it is today is like, I don't like to sit and listen to just one song. I like to listen to an album. And to me, it's, if I put on an album and, it's just a collection of singles that don't hold together to me. It's, it's not a good work. You know, it's just, I, you know, an artist that's been pressured by a record company to put out it to make them money. And that's not what it's about. I mean, it's like, it, we never got rich doing Love Tractor and we never expected to. Um, for us, it's a completely different thing. Um, I mean, I, I would say really uh, same with pylon, you know, it started as an art project right. in art school. And so for us, it's, it's always been about doing what we want to do. And, um, you know, but you know, there are points in our career where we had huge amounts of pressure to be like the next REM and which, you know, we're not, it's REM is a different band. Although we, you know, we had, tons of ties to them. Bill was our first drummer. He's credited with, you know, pretty much, you know, writing half the material on our first album, you know, collective, you know, collaboratively. Um, you know, all the Athens band, we all shared the same studio and equipment and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, it was very key for all of us back in the day in Athens to be to sound different, although we all thought we sounded different. Now I go back and I listen to all those albums from that era, and I can hear all the similarities where we were listening to each mm. other. I'm playing, you know, something that I know that Ricky Wilson from the B-52s, because he's you know, master guitar player, genius, brilliant guitar player, 
you know, that influenced me completely influenced me. And on themes from, from no, on the sky at night, there's a song, the title track is kind of the way I'm playing guitar on it is, is an homage to Randy Buley from Pylon. There's another song on that album called Elevator, which <coughs> Keith Strickland from the B-52s and I jammed out the rhythm guitar part for it. So it's it's interesting that to me that we all try to sound so different from each other, but at the end of the day, we're all we were all fans of each other and ended up <clears throat> sort of helping each other out. You know? Right. I mean, and, and isn't part of that just proximity? I mean, just because it's sort of like um like when I was in graduate school for writing, I noticed a lot of us, because we were around each other, we would sort of influence each other and then maybe even borrow and then give back. A lot. Yep. There was a lot of that, I think. Um, and I, it was, at least on our part, it was unintentional. Right. Um, it was, the funniest thing was everyone in Athens wanted to be in Love Tractor. And from all the other Athens bands, they all wanted to be in Love Tractor. <laughs> But they all had their own bands and, and were much more successful than we ever were. Um, because we, for some reason, our first two albums being so instrumental, um, we got to do whatever we wanted. The songs didn't really need vocals. No, they didn't. I mean, if, if they needed them, we added them. I mean, we, on the second album, we added them where they, need, where, 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 where they were needed. Um, and, um, yeah, there was always this sort of like faux myth that we never had vocals because we didn't have a PA and which is not true at all. It's, it's simply Mike and I sat around in my living room in Athens and, you know, one of these giant old houses, um, where Pylon lived, lived upstairs and, and Kit, our drummer lived across the hall. And Mike and I would sit there and just play guitar together. And I would play rhythm and he would play lead and with a drum machine and the songs would be complete. And then Armstead would come back and hear them and sort of what a bass player, really, a really great bass player like Armstead does is he, the bass kind of sort of conducts the song, adds the real final dynamics to the song. Um, it drives it where it needs to be driven or pulls it back. Um, and it, with a conversation, the bass player also has that conversation with the drummer. Um, but the songs didn't need any vocals. And then when they did, we had to go learn to sing. And that was the whole process. <laughs> into itself. I always, I always loved Love Tractor's vocals. I thought they were so cool. Oh, thanks. It was, you know, it was vocal coaches and whatnot to get that done. I mean, Mike sits there every day and has this tape thing that he sings along to, you know, to keep his voice going. And which I haven't done, which I need to do. It's like I need to go to a vocal coach and to get it rewarmed up. But, you know, lately what we've been doing is just playing our first two and a half albums and which are mainly instrumental so there's not a lot of vocal 
so that makes it easy. And um, um, we played this summer in Athens and Atlanta. We did two shows. They were great. Probably two of the best shows I think we've ever played, just sound-wise. And um, then we're playing again in January. And our goal in January is to start adding in songs from uh, This Ain't No Outer Spaceship, which is a really difficult album. Um, Talk about meticulous. Yeah. It's, It's extremely meticulous. And, you know, there's not room in it for something to be out of place. Um, And whereas Themes from Venus was sort of muscular and loud enough that there is room for us to, something to be a little bit out of place and not as pinpointed. But This Ain't No Outer Spaceship is really, it's a difficult album. And I, you know, I, I sit there and I'm relearning a lot of those songs. I'm thinking, you know, again, I'm thinking to myself, like, why did I write this? Or how did I play this? How, you know, it's just, there's, why did I play this much on it? I didn't need to. Uh, the complexity of that, I mean, of, of the Love Tractor sound, that album especially, I mean, I got that album when I was 16. And it yeah. really, you know, it, I'm just a kid from Concord, California in the Bay Area. And that just hit me square in the, you know, in the in the place where stuff, you know, you remember it forever. Um, that was yeah. a really important record for me. The The complexity um, is there for sure. But there's always been in this, even in the instrumental songs, there's a, a, a kind of accessible pop center. Um, yeah. Right? Yeah. They are. I mean, the funny thing about the, the instrumental songs is, they're just pop songs and right right and without vocals and they don't and really when you listen to them you don't miss the fact that they're vocals we used to get upset when people would always say oh you know critics would take the easy way out and say it's like surf rock and this trust me we never listened to surf music at all that was the last (laughs) you know there was the ray beats and they were you know, pals of ours. I mean, Pat produced one of our albums, but you know, they were very influenced by like a lot of the surf stuff, the Dick Dale and all that ventures and, um, and, um, but what I liked uh, about the Ray Beats was the stuff that was not influenced by any of the surf stuff. But when critics would, would just sort of light us off and say, Oh, it's, you know, surf rock with an edge or something like that, it would sort of, it wouldn't sort of, it actually would really anger us, because it wasn't at all. Um, well, it's lazy. It's a lazy, it's a lazy way to label a band. It's like, you didn't really do the work. You just sort of, you know, try to lump people in and get on with it, right? Yeah, it's, it is lazy. And, um, but also <clears throat> the other idea was, like, when we wrote um, uh, This Ain't No Outer Spaceship, was that you know, it's a very meticulous record. It shouldn't sound, it should not sound that way, though, to a listener's ears. The sh- the songs should just flow and not be, when I was in high school, you know, people would listen to Led Zeppelin and try to pick out all the guitar parts that were very meticulous from, like, Stairway to Heaven. 
and it should not be that way at all. It should it should sound easy, although it wasn't. Right, it does <laughs> sound nice. easy. It sounds it actually sounds kind of almost breezy. How did the friendships within the band? How did they? How did they survive? How did they age? Um, how'd you guys do? Because it, it's hard to keep a band together. And then when the band is no longer together, it's hard to keep friendships together. People fall out of touch. But you guys seem as tight as ever. You know, we're lucky that way. We just, you know, we we were kids when we started and we grew up together. And um, not to say that we haven't had our arguments, our disagreements, or that we still don't. But at the end of the day, we know that if we're going to make a love track record, it's it's us. It's nobody else. It's not adding, like, I can't drop out and be replaced. That is what we do. And we have these sort of unwritten rules about when we're writing. Um, you know, if somebody has an idea, no matter how bad the idea is, it's, we try it out. Because that bad idea may lead to a good idea. Right. And... Um, you know, but we've had our, you know, like anyone else, like any family, we've had our ups and downs. But, you know, we've always, anytime, we've all, you know, anytime it's been really bad, we've always made up. Because at the end of the day, we all, we know each other better than anybody else. Having worked together for so many years and been, you know, friends since we were kids. And also listening to each other and right. encouraging each other. <laughs> Arms is sort of the genius of that, of really kind of keeping everyone really encouraged and and moving things forward. You know, like this is the best. This is the best song we've ever written. You know, we've got to do this. We have to record it. We need it for posterity. Um, you know, Armstead's like the big cheerleader in the band. Uh, you know. Um, Mike is sort of the, how do I describe Mike? Mike is sort of the conceptualist in the band. The, the out there ideas. And then I'm sort of the practical one that brings it all down to earth and, you know, gets it produced. Um, you know, I usually have like, have a vision for the record or, or a song. Um, um, which those guys... They, you know, they've never really been into production, and um, that's sort of been my forte. So, you know, everyone has like a has a, a specific role that they play within the friendship and within the group, right? And um, uh, and it just, I mean, you know, it works. It's not that it's always been fantastic but um. <laughs> well like any relationship when when bill left the band did you uh -huh. did you notice a change in the sound because on a, on a on a another scale when he left rem I, I remember thinking well they'll be okay but but sonically i don't i don't think they were okay in the sense that i don't think they were the same band not not saying that's bad or good it was just different yeah, to me they became a different band. Yeah, because Bill, Bill, um, is the whipcracker in in a band. He's the guy that because Bill still plays with us. Like we do shows now. Like he played with us this summer, 
and um, he's always his head is always going. And with when REM first started, um, he's the guy that really sort of cracked the whip on those guys. And he was playing in REM and Love Tractor, and he, he came to us and he said, "We've got something great here. Are you guys willing to quit school and make a go for this?" And Armstrong and I said, "No." we want to finish college. And then he went to Peter and Michael and REM and said the same thing. And they said, yeah, we'll quit school. Let's make a go for this. Mills, Mike Mills was already Pete, Bill and Mills are like best, best friends since high school. So, um, and so Bill made the decision, you know, he's like, all right, so I'm going to go with REM, which wasn't, you know, for us wasn't a problem because there was kit from the side effects. Um, who is this amazing drummer? And um, but it really it, it didn't change. Although what the thing that did change, I think, is the fact that Bill is a real you know he's a pro, and he keeps things moving. He's not about wasting time. He's like this is working. This is not working. Um, very decisive and I you know I I commend him for for REM's success I mean it's to me him pushing the band to do it and he's a great songwriter at the same time when he returns to Love Tractor what does he bring to the band sonically um he brings arrangements and he doesn't play drums, although I would love for him to play drums on a certain track that we have. Um, um, for example, we were doing, um, you know, we recorded a, a cover of a Neon Lights back in the 80s, in the Kraftwerk song. Sure. And it was really successful, like number one on all the alternative charts and college charts and all that kind of, whatever those charts were back in the day. And um, so we were performing it this summer and Bill on, like right before he went on stage, he goes, I've got a different arrangement. Just like on the slide, he said, you know, looks at me and said, you drop out on this section and you come in on points that like arm says you come in on this section i'll come on on that and it was just perfectly thought out i mean bill's head is always turning and you know he's he brings this professionalism really he's always thinking about something he's always you know bill's a great guy he's a real sweetheart and, what was, um, yeah and he seems to me like like I get it because it, it it seems like sonically, um, he's really got some texture to what he does. Yeah, yeah. We like we were rehearsing at his house this summer, and he played me a track that he had recorded just recently. It was instrumental. I was like, uh, "Can we have that song?" <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, Bill's great. I mean, you know, and so if he plays with us now, he plays he plays guitar. But that's up to him if he wants to, um, when he wants to, what he wants to play on. 
with songs. Um, and it's always an added benefit because he's he's such a he's really good at what he does, especially as an arranger. You know, he just really hears stuff in another way. And, um, and you know, it's, it's always great when it's somebody that's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's sort of different. <laughs> you know, yeah, you stand up and listen.
mean, you you talked about this idea of you guys had your your feet really on the ground. You were reading the green. You were very aware of the landscape and what was happening. Um, but I wonder, was there just a part of you when that whole Athens Georgia Inside Out thing came out? Um, was there a part of you, you know, watching what happened to REM? where you thought, well, we could be huge, or did that not really interest you and you were more realistic and you, you planned for other things in terms of putting food on the table? That, when that movie came out, well, first of all, there's a lot to say about that movie. Filmmakers for that movie came, and to me, they really wanted to make another Vernon, Florida, uh, and, and make, you know, make fun of the Athens, a lot of it. Um, with the wacky characters and whatnot. And there were bands in it like uh, Dexter, um, you know, what, what's the Fly Duo Chess. They weren't even from Athens. Right, right. They, you know, and they, and so, you know, when that movie was done, we were, I think, we had just recorded or we were getting ready to record this Inno Outer Spaceship. And we were under huge amounts of pressure from we were on big time records which was yeah. like the test rca's test label and and we were under tons of pressure from them to be you know the next big athens band and um and sadly they we Sadly, we, they strong-armed us into recording a cover of something that we do as a joke, like like a third encore or something um, of the Gap Band's party train. And they strong-armed us into recording it and then making it a single instead of what should have been the single was Beetle Boots, on right. the record, which we'd written as the single. And, you know... I mean, to this day, I can promise you, we'll never ever play Party Train. It's one of those, it's, you know, it's one of those songs. But we that that when that movie was happening was, I mean, we were really touring a ton. We were signed. There was a lot of pressure on us to be the next big thing, and um, we were okay with it at the time. I mean, because we had the I think we had the chops to do it and the timing, the time was right. Um, and, um, and, but then of course the label went out of business, you know, and we, I mean, we literally, I was we were on tour and I was in Florida and I got a call from the manager. We'd already booked studio time to record the, to record themes from Venus and, What's his name? I can't remember the producer's name. He produced Echo and the Bunny Men, um, English producer. Was it McKillop? Um, Not McKillop. No, he did like Bring on the Dancing Horses. He produced that. Okay. And Lips Like Sugar. Um, um, we had the producer booked. We had studio time booked. We had everything booked. Everything ready to go. And we get a call and they're shutting down the label because, you know, I mean, there's a whole history to big time records. That's you know, ask anyone, ask the guys from Dump Truck about oh. it. You know, I mean, they were completely screwed. And so, when that happened, it, I, in a way, it sort of 
took a lot of pressure off of us because we went back to our old label, which is completely independent, and we could do what we wanted. And so we went up to Mitch Easter's studio. Mitch had been an old friend for years. And Mitch is the type of guy that is game for anything. And also being, you know, really from our same school, um, knew where our heads were, um, knew what we were talking about, spoke our language. We weren't dealing with engineers. And, you know, we would go to studios to record and we would be dealing with engineers that, you know, the had just finished recording White Snake, <laughs> you know, and you're like, no, 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 <laughs> no, that's not going to work. You know, and the producer sitting there with his head in his hand going, oh, God, why, do, why am I stuck with this engineer? I've got to bring another engineer in. And so with Mitch, you know, it's completely different themes from Venus. Because um, we produced it, Mitch and I, Mitch, well, and Love Tractor produced it. And and Mitch engineered it. And Mitch knew exactly what we were going for. He knew every kind of reference. We say, you know, this is, this song is a bit uh, Scott Walker, right? And he he would know exactly what we were talking about. Um, and you know, we're all fans of the same sort of music, so it was you know it was great. So we got to sit there and make the make a record that we wanted to make, and um, which would have been a completely that record would have sounded completely different if it had been under the auspices of uh, big-time RCA. That big-time thing, a lot of people... I mean, that label was so big for me. I think I was telling you this. I mean, Jazz Butcher, Dream Syndicate, Huxton Creepers, yeah. Drug Tractor. I mean, the list goes on. I'm, I'm already... Hoodoo Gurus. Um, you know, yeah. they ha- I mean, they were in the pocket for like two years. They, If I got a package from big-time at the radio station, I was like, oh, it's it's about to happen. <laughs> you know, I loved what they were doing. I know, um, but they really I screwed know. people over, I guess. They scare, yeah, you know. Everyone, some people say, "Oh, it went all up everyone's nose." I don't know. Jim Barber, who manages driving and crying, he, you know, he could probably give you the whole breakdown of it. Um, but you know, for me, it's like I never look back. It was over. It was over. What's next? Right. And, right. Um, and that's sort of how we work. I mean. If there's ever a problem with us is that we work very slowly. <laughs> We're very methodical. I mean, the only other band I can think of that's like us is like Kraftwerk. I mean, it's like, you know, they'll say, oh, we're working on a new album. That that would have been 10 years ago, and there's still no new album out. Um, but, you know, we we're sitting there looking. We're actually looking at schedules right now. Like, when can we which three songs we want to finish first because we're not going to finish a whole album at once the way things work. Um, and which are the three songs where are we going to do it in Athens or in Richmond, uh, Virginia. And so, you know, stuff is moving along like that. And then also the remastering and, and re-release of all of our back catalog. And the hold up on that has been, simply the people that we want to do the transfer on the first album since it's 16 track the people that would do the transfer are also doing all the transfers for austin city limits for the first 14 years and so they had (laughs) they've had a 16 track head 
tape had made, handmade to do these those transfers, and we want to use that ad yeah. because it'll it'll be perfect. You know, it'll capture everything that's on the tape. And the head was just completed, so all I need now is the transfer, and then find the right engineer and studio, which, you know, I could probably go remix that album in a weekend or over a course of two weekends. And, and then we're ready to go. Because all the other stuff is, is, what about logistically? I'm sorry. What about logistically? Like, are you in terms of live shows? Cause you, you live in New York, right? Yeah. So I live in New York. Armstead lives in Richmond. Mike lives in Athens. Doug lives in Athens. Um, um, so it's, yeah, logistically it's, you know, everyone kind of flies into a place, it, either it's in Richmond or it's never here in New York or it's in Athens. Right. And, you know, we schedule it all out and, um, it was the same way when we did sky at night, I was living in DC at the time and I, I would fly, I would fly to Charlotte and then take like a little Beechcraft airplane from Charlotte to Athens. But U.S. Air had some little frightening flight. Uh, and I'd fly to Athens and, you know, work for a week. And, and we schedule, we try to schedule it so that we can all take like a week off and get our heads into the right space of it. And then do what we always have done is stand back, you know, go away and listen to what we recorded um, and listen to it and listen to it some more and <coughs> and then talk about it. And then maybe somebody will take, take it into a studio and say, oh, I'll have another idea. Let me, let me just go to try this and see what you guys think. And um, I mean, that's, it's, interesting just how we work I mean, it's just it's very methodical um and this record especially is um it's it's being done over long distance um which is something we've done before but never to this extent um so like i don't have an idea or i'll have something i'll write it like on my workstation and i'll talk it like armstead maybe the guitar parts for it and he'll, so I send him, you know, uh, a CD with, you know, drum machine and some strings and some basic riffs on it. And then he adds bass and some guitar and then it goes to Mike and he, Mike listens to it and says, uh, can you take that part out? Can you chop it this way? And we do that and then send it back to him. And he goes in the studio and puts some vocals on it. And then we listen to it and we say, ah, no, we need to rearrange the music underneath those vocals. Mm. And um, it's interesting. I mean, it it moves a lot faster when we're all in the same room. You know, we're getting into a certain place sort of by sending tapes back and forth and getting sort of arrangements close. And um, And then, you know, knock it out um together i like that that 
Love Tractor is something that is an ongoing enterprise. I mean, when you work this way and um, always having been meticulous or methodical, um, it seems like there's no there's no end in sight. Like it seems like it's just going to be a, a project that will continue on, which I love. It will. It very much will be. Um, if, you know, it's, we always reach like a certain point where it, it's like, is this a love tractor record? Are we writing a love tractor record? Or is this a different band? Have we, you know, have we become other people? So you, you know, matured in such a way that that it's not what um, you would expect. But yeah, it still seems to be love tractor. I mean, you know, there's some records that my, you know, Mike went and did in the 2000s, where you know he wanted to go record and and we I'm sorry we weren't into it and and so he went and recorded a bunch of songs and went to a label and label said we'll we, sure we'll release them but you have to release them under the name Love Tractor right <laughs> which he did and I sat there and I called and I said Mike you these records would get first of all gotten a lot more traction if you'd called me up and I'd come down and produced them for you and also, if you had re- released them under your name, you know, pressure the record company to say, no, do it under my name. And, you know, but it's like, <laughs> what are you going to do? You know, people get in, it just confuses people. And so that's something that has to be, you know, he and I've talked about. It's like those have to be pulled, they have to be re released under his name. I'm just like, and you know, I I want to go remix them, um, and you know, and then they get to do to do justice, you know, of being his work, and um, which it should be. Yeah, I remember those records, and they're yeah. and. And they're kind of interesting and cool. There's really great ideas on them. Um, and they feel a bit like they're just almost like sketches, but, but they they're, are, yeah. right. But they're cool. Yeah. I mean, but you, were you, you weren't angry when he did that. No, no, no. I mean, for, for us, we were just sort of like, oh, you know, he made a mistake. Right. He lives in a record company. And you know, my role in the band has always been the guy in the band that deals with the management and deals with the agent and tells them how to deal with the record company, where I go deal directly with the record company. And that's nothing that Mike or Armstead have ever had to deal with at all. And, and you know... <laughs> It's just like, you know, all I could do was laugh. Right. I was like, dude, why'd you do that? <laughs> well, well, they weren't going to put it out. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Like, I, I had talked to him around that time. And I remember thinking, like, these records, there's, again, they're brimming with ideas. But but they just didn't feel fleshed out to me. Um, no. You know, and I'm glad that, that you can... Hopefully you can revisit them and and you know put the flesh on the bones. Well, you know there are a couple of those songs I'd like to take and turn them into love tractor songs. Right, probably. right. 
you know, and like you say, put the flesh on the bones um, because they're not flushed out. Um, you know, Mike was working with other musicians who were probably just looking up to him. And there's a specific way that we all work with each other where we pressure each other. And, you know, Mike gets a lot of pressure from me and from Armstead. And like, no, 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 you can do better. No, no, no. Okay, it was that lick. And, and they, you know, we all do it to each other. It's like, I'll be playing something and they'll say, that sucks. It was the lick before. And, you know, because if we're writing in the same room, we record everything. We go back, you know, hit the tape machine, put it on reverse and, and say, oh, that, okay. Oh, I should repeat that. Oh, I get it now. Yeah, that should be the melody here. And I think, you know, Mike was working. I'm guessing, you know, Mike was working, you know, with these guys that didn't know, understand how to work with Mike, which is you really have to pressure him and push him to do his best and um, to get that out of him. And, you know, they're just playing along. And it doesn't work that way because it's never, and I, I think for Mike it was probably difficult because it's we've never been successful any of us at trying to do solo projects we've always only ever worked as love tractor mm. as the, at least the core three of us and Doug um, our drummers sort of come and go um, and um, but like I, you know, I have no sense of or desire to go and write a solo album at all. I like to work collaboratively. And it's sort of, for, at least for us, when we get together and we play, it's magic for us. The audience may not like it, but for us, it, we get our rocks off. And, you know, we write what we like and we think are great songs. Um, that's to me the most important thing. Um, it's great when the audience loves it. I love to go out and play to the audience and have them cheer along and be part of it because, you know, really what the Athens, people just want to know what was the evolution of the Athens scene, what caused it. And it wasn't the bands, it was the audience. Uh, it was who we were playing. We were playing for our friends. And they were just as important, if not more important, than the bands. People would say, oh, what was in the water? And, <laughs> you know, uh, LSD. You know, it was our <laughs> friends. Our friends, we were, all, you know, it was a group of maybe, on in the very early days, <laughs> at the biggest extent of it, you might be able to get away saying 150 people. And, and, we there was nothing to do in this sleepy southern college town that was you know it was, it was like stepford wives and and we all went to art school and which was off on this far side of the campus and people didn't know who the hell we were and what was amazing was the art school at that time was had amazing professors and amazing artists that came through um, and would teach 
Um, and, you know, we there was a ton of encouragement to do what we did. And encouragement in the sense that taking visual aesthetics and applying them to audible aesthetics. And, um, and I mean, I remember you know, like our first album coming out and going to my typography professor who had been a student of Joseph Albers, who was, Joseph Albers taught at the Bauhaus. Mm. And, and, you know, I'm looking at the cover of our first album going like, oh, yes, uh-huh, Cable. And looking at the type going, uh-huh, Albers, homage to the square, you know. You know, it's exactly knew where I was coming from. And there's like the first album, the, the first pressing of it, the cover was, was printed in England. And it was all spot color and what you call in the industry, which is Pantone, you know, spot, color, ink, individual inks, not four color process, which is like a way a magazine is printed. <laughs> These very specific tones to it. So if you took a picture of the record in black and white, it would just look gray. So the hues of the cover were changed the intensity or, or showed the contrast. Um, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I think you sort of have to go into art school to know what I'm <laughs> talking about. It's because they were all the same tone. If you, you know, in black and white sense, tone is, is on a grayscale. <laughs> but the hues were different. So, you know, there was stuff like that that was important to us. And, and, you know, Performing for our friends and um, and being different, you know, with from the other bands. Well, not that there were either. there was the BPT2s, there was Pylon, Buffett Actors, Us, um, REM, um, and that we all try to be different. You know, we were like, oh, well, they've got that sound. Our sound is like this, and. And, you know, we'd all play parties. I mean, every Athens band will tell you about the first party they played, at least from that first generation of Athens bands. And, you know, the famous one, of course, was Arian playing in the church. Um, B-52's playing at this Valentine's Day house party, you know. Uh, we played at a house party, you know, during the summer. Just sort of the way it worked. It was fun. And it came out of art school really kind of as an art project and and still continues to be that to this day, in a sense. Well, um, you know, that's the thing I wanted to ask you is that, and a lot of people who listen to the show are, you know, artists of, of some kind, aspiring or um, thinking about being aspiring or whatever it might be. And I think for me, being from the Bay Area and being a weirdo was easy because, the, yeah. you know, there's a lot of us out here. Um, so even though we, you know, a lot of us were loners, we were loners together. Um, and I think there's probably an unfair depiction of how the South might treat an outsider. Um, but did you feel, a, like, I don't think it's unfair. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, we would get chased down the street, you know, by the frat boys, you know, by what, because of what we were wearing. Right. I mean. I mean, and not chase down the street like to, you know, have like something thrown at us. Yeah, they would chase us down the street to beat the shit out of us. Mm. 
And, um, you know, but then they, but then eventually they became afraid of us. And then they became fans. Right. You know, you go to Athens now and it's just a completely different place. You know, it's like, it's just like, it's kind of like Nashville. I mean, there's so many singer songwriters that have moved there and lived there. And, and you know, I keep saying, God, I wish it was been that way when we were coming around because it's like, you know, you need a drummer or you need a horn player. You need somebody. There's, there's always somebody around that you can use. Well, I mean, that's what I think that movie missed is I thought that, that the glue that sort of held everybody together was that you guys were in your own fraternity of oddballs and artists and that's right right and that that was the that was the connective tissue and i thought the movie completely didn't understand that which is bizarre the movie was slow the movie was just you know it was a vehicle you know the movie wouldn't have gotten made if rm hadn't been huge at the time and that's just what it comes down to Right. So it was a movie about R.E.M. that then tried to make the rest of Athens look like this just town of insane people. And and it didn't really capture that there's this guy in Atlanta, Danny Beard, who started DB Records. Sure. And um, another guy named Jeremy Ayers, who was one of Warhol's drag queens, um, who basically influenced the B-52s into being what they were. Um, and that there was this whole, uh, you know, very deep connection between Athens and New York. And, and it, none of that was ever put together. It was just, you know, like here's Ort, this wacko that collects beer bottles, you know, it's like, you know, nothing ever held together. Um, no, it was like watching like revisionism, you know. It was. Yeah, we yeah. were like so pissed when we saw the movie. We were just like, really? I mean, my how we're going down to posterity, you know. This? Yeah, I know. I know because they were – it's like they were it, – it was under the guise of celebrating it, but it ended up marginalizing it. Yeah, and to me it mocked it. And yeah. now there's like a movement – there are a lot of scholars coming around, sniffing around, wanting to write books really about how it really was, and documentarians that are before, you know, everyone goes, dies off, um, that really want to capture what it was about, really and truly what it was about. Because there's a story there that has never been told. It's sort of been told there's that new book on R.E.M., called begin the begin yeah and in that book it kind of captures what it was like um and it's really hard to describe what it was like i mean my trust me my, my memory is a little fade from armstead has the best memory at all um and some other people do as well but you know it was you know it's a tiny group of people in this sleepy college town, you know, 65 miles away from Atlanta, which could have been a thousand miles away from anywhere. And, um, and everyone was conformist except for us. Right. 
except this small group of people. And we came there and we said, this is our playground. What are you talking about? You know, I mean, everything was open all the time. You know, school buildings or clubs, you know, and if there was a nightclub that was so sort of down with what you were doing, you know, they would lock the doors because everything closed like at 1130 at night. They'd lock the doors and lock everyone in. And you'd party all night. Or you'd go to a house party. Michael LaHusky from Pylon had his answering machine was called Party Line. And you would call it, and he would have a message on his answering machine saying, tonight's parties are, <laughs> and name off where they were. And they were all parties that were, you know, people that we wouldn't hang out with, that we just know where the party was when we'd go crash it. It was like, like that two song party out of bounds like oh no not them because <laughs> we would show up and it was like we would show, <laughs> we'd show up and like you know be a group of maybe like 15 of us and people would be horrified and like one of us would go in the kitchen and start cooking food or you know it's was, it was insane and it was a very very different place and we made our own entertainment and we, because there was no, there was no entertainment. And it just so happened that we all were a lot of music fans. And we, the way we sort of exercised making our own entertainment was making music. It took up a lot of time. And it was fun. And we did it for our friends. Um, equally as much for us as for our friends. I mean, that original Athens audience, you know, I, I could list off a name of people, were just as important as the bands. Um, yeah, it, it's so fabled. I mean, it, it's, you know, my my romantic idea of it was, you know, just based on what I was listening to and intuitively what I was thinking. Um, and I'm sure part of it was right and part of it was wrong. Um, but when that movie came out and it kind of filled in the blanks, it something didn't seem right to me. It seemed it kind was of wrong. Yeah, that, it's, that movie was like a complete lie. <laughs> it was just right. a complete, utter lie. And I, you know, to this day, I can't even watch it. it makes me sick. Oh, I bet. I, I bet. Um, well, I mean, dude, I'm so excited about the fact that these albums are going to get a proper remastering, a proper a proper brush over um yeah you know, i know i mean i think it's such an exciting thing your your discography is airtight i mean the work that you have done um is from start to finish and 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 continuing on uh is just some of my favorite music in the world that's wonderful to hear thank you so much of course man and i'm so happy that there's new music on the way and um and these reissues so hopefully They'll be out soon, but we don't know. We, but you're, you're... I know. They're supposed to be out soon. <laughs> like, <laughs> what the holdup is for me is the holdup is me going and remixing this first album and getting it right because we want to release them in sequence. Right. The albums have to come out and see. I don't, you know, I, I'm not going to do a dump of albums all at once. No. And um, so they need to come out in sequence for the fans to listen to them, how they developed. And um, um, 
So I'm, in fact, this weekend, I'm going to call this guy in Atlanta, Jeff Calder, who's in the band called the Swimming Pool Cues, to see when I can get that transfer because he's on, he's kind of managing it for me because um, the head is done. Head's complete. It's ready to go. It's ready. And, well, um, it's very exciting, Mark. I, I'm, I'm so psyched about it. And I think um, it, you know, there's a chance to really like introduce the work to a whole new group of people. I think so. I mean, you know? uh, it would be nice, you know, uh, if, if, you know, there was a new fan base for it. Um, but, you know, I think, our, you know, there's our existing fan base that still, you know, wants to be serviced. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm under no illusion that I'm going to go attract a bunch of 15 year olds you know, to the right. music. But there are there are some uh, out there that will be reached. Yeah, for sure. You know, Um well, I'm, I'm so grateful that you took the time to talk to me. I, I've wanted to talk to you for a really long time. And I, I, what a what a blast to have a chat. Yeah, it's great. I appreciate your time. And dude, uh, you know, don't topple any golf carts and have a safe, quiet weekend. Thank you so much. You too. Thanks, buddy. Okay, Alex. Bye-bye. Wasn't he a lovely guy? Mark Klein uh, of Love Tractor. I enjoyed that conversation. Uh, I like Mark a lot. Uh, I think 2020 is going to be the year of the tractor. So get ready. Lots of news from, uh, from that camp, uh, some of which I'll announce here in one second. Uh, before I do, you can follow them on Twitter at Love Tractor, L-U-V Tractor uh, for that one. Or find them on Facebook Follow them on Facebook. Friend them on Facebook. What are we doing on Facebook these days? <laughs> Stalking, following, uh, Zuckerberging. I don't really know. <laughs> but uh, their Facebook page is active. So find them there. Uh, there's lots of news uh, in their camp. Uh, here's some of that news right now. This Friday, January 17th, Love Tractor will be playing with OOK at the 40 Watt Club in Athens, Georgia. Just go to 40watt.com. By the way, that's 40, the number. Don't spell it. Uh, you'll end up somewhere else entirely. Uh, 40watt.com. Go there, buy your tickets, and then buy your tickets for the next night because Love Tractor are playing Saturday, January 18th with Magnapop. That will be at the Vista Room uh, in Atlanta. Tickets can be found at freshticks.com, F-R-E-S-H-T-I-X.com. Hey, listen, you have a great weekend in front of you. Two Love Tractor shows. Uh, where will I be? I'll be in California uh, living vicariously through you. So report back. Send me a note. How was the show? I want to hear all about it. Editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com or on Twitter at Embers Editor or on Instagram at Embers Podcast. Remember, Stereo Embers the Podcast is available on all podcast platforms. Go to where you feel most comfortable and uh, subscribe for free. Tell all your friends. All right. I think we've covered everything. There was a lot. It's time-sensitive stuff. We have to get the information out there uh, to you. Uh, By the way, thank you, as always, for listening to the program. Without you, my listeners, this would all be, well, it would all be a little weird. All right, let's close the show with a song from the Around the Bend album by Love Tractor. This is Timberland. Enjoy it, and I will see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only 
on Bombshell Radio. <laughs>